Adams wrote a letter to the officers of the Massachusetts militia, his home state, warning them against the dangers of hypocrisy. That letter contains one of John Adams' most famous statements. In the letter he wrote, Our Constitution was made only for a moral and religious people. It is wholly inadequate to the government of any other. And that is an interesting statement from one of the people who helped write the Declaration of Independence. And he, that is Adams, along with the other founders of the United States, knew that the American form of government was unique in the history of the world, but it could only thrive so long as it, there was a definite sense of public morality. If morality was thrown out the window, so would the American experiment. If people served the mob or did whatever they chose, really their, their government they had created would come crashing down. Well, today we celebrate the birthday of the United States of America. And I think that the founding fathers of this country, many of them interesting individuals to say the least, would probably be a little bit surprised to learn that we are still here, still surviving. We haven't returned to monarchy or descended into despotism. However, I think they would have some reason to be alarmed about where our country is. In fact, many of us might have the same feeling. Because I doubt anyone today would describe America as a whole as being a moral and religious people. In fact, if you look even at the um, census and all the numbers that are collected, there's a downturn every year in the number of people who freely identify as religious. Much less how they practice or what they truly believe, but even just in identifying with churches or synagogues or religious organizations. So we have come a long way, I think, from being the moral and religious people that Adams was used to seeing. And the question that we have to ask is, well, what does that mean for our future as a country? What does that mean for our country as a whole if we abandon the foundations of the past and celebrate sin? You know, sin has a certain, and we could say significant effects on people as well as cultures and countries. Where sin is embraced and practiced, we can expect to see its effects spread. And that's truly, that's true in our country, it's true in us as individuals. And my point this morning is not so much to talk about America, although that, we'll talk about that. I think this message is going to be very personal as well. Because what is true for a country is also true for an individual when it comes to embracing sin. Sin, though it promises blessing and promises freedom and pleasure, actually strips us of all of them. So I mentioned several times this morning sin, and that being a, a significant part of this uh, whole picture I'm drawing here. But what is it? How do we define it? How do we describe it? After all, if you look around today, really the only people who talk about sin anymore are basically Christians and churches. And even then, it's not very carefully defined. And, and the only things that would really truly be branded as being sinful are just a handful of select vices. So what is sin, biblically speaking? Well, let me give you the definition as I was given it when I was, I, when I was in college. Sin is anything, act, attitude, or state of being which is contrary to the nature and will of God. It's anything, whether it's something that we do, some attitude we have, or even the state of being of being that which is contrary 
to what pleases God, his character and his will. The Bible describes it in 1 John 3 as lawlessness. Sin is without law. It's a rejection of God's rule over us. When I was teaching uh, Good News Club in an elementary school years ago, uh, we always used to tell the kids, sin is anything you think, say, or do which displeases God. And that pretty much captures most of our activity, doesn't it? Think, say, or do. Pretty much everything we do could be, or pretty much all of our activities could be categorized in one of those areas. So sin is that which displeases God, which, which goes against his character and his will. Now this morning, I want us to turn to Judges chapter 2. And actually, what I'd like you to do, this is going to be kind of a different message, okay? This is not how I typically preach, but I think it'll make sense. Put a finger in Judges chapter 2, and then, whether you, you slide a bulletin in or something, keep a place in John chapter 8 as well. We're going to be flipping between these two passages because they, they somewhat complement each other, even though it may not be apparent at the beginning. Here's another way in which this sermon is sort of backwards and upside down of what I normally do. Normally, I would tell you what the, the thrust of the message is going to be and then show it to you from the passage. I'm going to do the opposite this time. I want to look at the passages and eventually work our way towards what is the big idea that's communicated to us in these places. So with a finger in Judges chapter 2 and a finger or marker in John chapter 8, I want us to see these passages in light of our own country and in light of ourselves. Because in them, we're going to see Three details about sin that are, are important for us to recognize. Number one, the progress of sin. The progress of sin. Again, let's look together in Judges chapter 2. And actually, Judges is a very appropriate book for us to think about. Not just this morning, but in general. Now, the question is why? What, is, what does the book of Judges have to do with 21st century America? Well... Judges describes what could be described as a very dark time in Israel's history. The people of Israel, having been led out of Egypt by Moses through many signs and wonders, received the law at Mount Sinai. There they were told by God and made his people and, and given this law by which to live. Then the wilderness generation proceeded on to what was called the promised land. They failed, however, to trust God and were forced to wander in the wilderness for 40 years until that generation passed away. And a new generation was raised up who did courageously trust God and go into the land. Then we have the leadership of Joshua on the scene. Joshua leads the people in victory over the Canaanites. They conquer the land just as God had told them to. And even though the conquest was successful, it was not complete. Israel failed to fully obey the Lord. They did not drive out all the Canaanites of the land. And the last link to the time of the Exodus and the conquest is Joshua himself. So with his death, a new period begins, the period which is the period of the judges. So what are all these similarities I'm talking about? Well, let me be clear, first of all. I'm not saying that America is the new Israel or that we are God's covenant people. I'm not even saying that America is a Christian nation. It's not. I am saying we're similar in this respect, that Israel had many blessings, and yet they turned away from all those blessings, and in spite of those blessings and advantages, 
and went their own way and chose, instead of serving God, to serve idols, to serve sin. You know, I believe our country has likewise benefited from a lot of blessings. From the time of its founding, men like George Washington recognized the hand of providence upon our nation. So America has been blessed by God in many ways. The question is, what have we done with those blessings? Well, let's look at what Israel did. In Judges chapter 2, let's start in verse 7. The Bible says, So the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua, who had seen all the great works of the Lord which he had done for Israel. Now, you might not notice it at first, but verse 7 has a little bit of an ominous ring to it. You might say, well, it sounds pretty positive to me. You know, the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua. But you notice that little phrase, all the days of Joshua. It kind of implies, doesn't it, that only as long as Joshua or the elders were present. And so while what it says on the surface is positive, it actually has this, this ominous undertone. It's kind of like, uh, you know, if I told you, well, things went really well all day today. It kind of has the implication of, or if I said, oh, everything went well the first day, you kind of would get the idea and say, well, what happened the second day? Was it not so good? Or if you said something like, well, the kids were all very well behaved as long as I was in the room. It seems to imply that as soon as I left the room, things went chaotic. And that's kind of what is implied here in this verse. Things went really well. The people served the Lord as long as Joshua was there, as long as the elders were there. Something was going to change, this dark turn ahead. You notice in verse 7, though, they served the Lord all the days of Joshua and the days of the elders who outlived Joshua. So both Joshua and the people of that generation died away. They had seen the works of the Lord. They had known what God had done for Israel. Now they're gone. Verse 8, now Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died when he was 110 years old, and they buried him within the border and the inheritance of timnath Harris in the mountains of Ephraim on the north side of Mount Gash. When all the generations had been gathered to the Father, another generation rose after them who did not know the Lord nor the work which he had done for Israel. And there it is. A new generation arises. Joshua is now gone. The elders are now gone. This generation, however, does not know the Lord. Now, that expression doesn't mean they knew nothing about the Lord. It doesn't mean that their parents had failed to teach them about the Exodus and about God's mighty hand upon them. This word seems to imply a personal knowledge of God. They didn't know God personally. Yeah, they had heard the stories but they hadn't acknowledged him. They hadn't recognized him as God. In other words, they may have known about God, but they didn't really care about him, and they really didn't care about what he had to say. They were going to do what they wanted to do. And by the way, lest we think the Old Testament was all about obeying the law, and the New Testament is about having a relationship with the Lord, let me remind you, it's always been about a relationship with the Lord. Here, they didn't know him. The problem wasn't necessarily that they broke the law, although they did that, and that was a problem. The problem is that they don't know the Lord. I guess the question we have to reckon with, and one that's going to come out throughout this message, is do you know the Lord? 
I don't mean do you know about him? Can you tell me a few facts? Can you tell me about Jesus' crucifixion? The question is, do you know him personally? Have you ever come to trust him as your Savior? You see, Israel, because of their ignorance of God, descended into a cycle of sin which becomes the pattern for the whole book of Judges. Daniel Block, an Old Testament scholar, writes, when people lose sight of God's grace, they lose sight of God and any sense of obligation to him. All that follows in this book is a consequence of Israel's loss of memory. And this is something that we ought to be wary of in our own country. A loss of a memory of God leads to many other things. Now, what follows in verses 11 to 16 is called the cycle in the book of Judges, okay? If you want to use this as a pattern, this fits over the entire book. Again and again, we're going to see the cycle repeated. Let's look at it. Verse 11. Then the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. The Baals, by the way, were the pagan false gods of the Canaanites. He was the the god of thunder, considered the chief god of, of Canaan. They forsook the Lord God of their fathers and brought that who had brought them out of the land of Egypt and followed other gods among the people who were all around them. They bowed down to them and provoked the Lord to anger. They forsook the Lord and served Baal and the Ashtoreths. And the anger of the Lord was hot against Israel. He delivered them into the hands of plunderers who despoiled them. And he sold them into the hands of their enemies all around them so they, they no longer stand before their enemies. Whenever, wherever they went out, the hand of the Lord was against them for calamity, as the Lord had said, and as the Lord had sworn to them, and they were greatly distressed. Nevertheless, the Lord raised up judges who delivered them out of the hands of those who plundered them. So the cycle is laid out in four steps. Let me give them to you. It begins with sin. These are not original to me, by the way. This has been recognized by many. There's the cycle of sin. Israel turns away from the Lord. They, they worship idols instead of God. And here it mentions they serve the Baals and the gods of the people around them. Uh, these false gods, the Baals and others, were extremely wicked. Uh, not only were they, was the, the practice of idolatry in itself an evil thing, but the worship of these false gods included all kinds of, all manners of sexual immorality and uh, child abuse and various other evil practices. So whenever it says they followed these false gods, it's not like they just, you know, set up a picture in their house and that was, that was all that had to do with that. There was actually a whole host of evil, wicked practices. I've mentioned it before, but uh, I had a chance to visit a museum one time that had a lot of the uh, artifacts from this period of history, idols from uh, Canaanite times. And honestly... I mean, there was nothing that was supernatural in the room, but you definitely got a sense of how evil these things were. I mean, this was an evil oppressive. It's kind of like how you might have items that are connected to witchcraft. There's just sort of this creepy sense of evil that surrounds them. That's the feeling I definitely got with these pagan gods that were worshipped at the time of Israel. So they served the Baals and the Ashtoreths, which was... uh, Baal's consort, his, uh, the female goddess who was oftentimes associated with Baal. So they turned to sin. And they plunged into not just the worship of the false gods, but all the sinful practices that went with it. 
And the primary sin here is idolatry, but certainly it included much, much more. So they would offer up children to these false gods to be sacrificed and all sorts of of things. Eventually, though, sin gave way to servitude. Because God was angered because of their wickedness, he would hand them over to their enemies so that they would be oppressed, that they would be subjugated. It says that in verse 14. They would be plundered, and their enemies would be all around, and they could do nothing about it. However, servitude eventually led Israel to supplication, that is, prayers. Now, that's not exactly mentioned here in this passage. Uh, in fact, nowhere here does it mention prayer specifically, but if you notice the end of verse 15, it says they were greatly distressed. In other words, they come to this point of, we can't, we can't handle this any longer. Now, if we actually look at the pattern as it plays out, if you look down at uh, chapter 3, verse 8, it says, therefore the anger of the Lord was hot against them, and the children, verse 9, cried out, the children of Israel cried out to the Lord, they s- supplicated, they prayed. Uh, chapter 3, uh, verse 14 says, when the Children of Israel served Eglon, king of Moab, 18 years. And when the children of Israel cried out to the Lord again, uh, we see in chapter 4, verse 1, when Ehud was dead, the children of Israel did evil in sight of the Lord. The Lord sold them into the hands of their enemies. Verse 3, the children of Israel cried out to the Lord. So this pattern of supplication. And then finally, salvation. God would hear the voice of Israel, and he would send them a judge. Look at chapter 2, verse 16. Nevertheless, the Lord raised up judges who delivered them out of the hands of those who plundered them. This is the progress of sin. This is the cycle that Israel was constantly stuck in. Now, the progress of sin to servitude is all but a guarantee. If we serve sin, if we practice sin, it will eventually lead to bondage, not freedom as many think it will, but actually into bondage. So I guess, as we look at this, if America follows the road that so many other nations have followed, we mentioned the Roman Empire already this morning, how do we think that we will not, that we will escape the judgment that they faced? In other words, if sin, if celebrating and practicing sin leads into bondage, well then, wouldn't we expect that to be true of our country as well? You know, there, there are obvious differences between modern America and Israel, but there's a lot of similarities too. The practices that a few generations ago would have been considered unthinkably evil or, or wicked are hardly thought of that way anymore. Uh, instead of offering up children to the god Molech so that our harvest would go well, we just simply abort our children and in order to live a more easily sustainable life, you know, in order to keep our lifestyle. You know, many prophetic books in the Bible contain oracles against the nations. And it's basically this. If you practice sin, if you indulge in sin, the progress of sin will catch up to you. You will f- reach that point of oppression where you are brought low, where you are subjugated. It's, it's a simple matter of cause and effect. You reap what you sow. And so if we sow in sin, we will reap the just rewards of it. That's simply the progress of it. 
I think about it in our culture today. You know, if you normalize pornography and you openly encourage immorality of all types, you will reap a culture in which women and children are abused. You cannot have your cake and eat it too. You cannot, you cannot support those things and expect that, oh, well, we'll be free of the side effects. No, you won't. You will reap what you sow. I want us to turn over now to John chapter 8. Because, again, let's not think that I'm just talking about nations here. There's a similar thing that happens. John chapter 8. Jesus is disputing with the Pharisees here. In fact, it begins off, he's talking to some of his disciples, his followers. John chapter 8, verse 31. John 8, 31. Then Jesus said to the Jews who believed him, If you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed. You shall know the truth, and the truth will make you free. They answered him and said, We are Abraham's descendants. We have never been in bondage to anyone. How can you say you will be made free? Jesus answered them, most assuredly, I say to you, whoever commits sin is a slave of sin. If you practice sin, if that becomes your lifestyle, you become a slave to it. It does not lead to freedom. It leads to bondage. And that's really where I want to get to. Not only do we see the progress of sin, we also see the bondage of sin. Sin blinds and sin binds. Following their idols did not lead Israel to greater freedom, but to subjugation. It's the second stop on that cycle, servitude. Now, the people of Israel, when they started worshiping these false gods, probably thought they were pursuing freedom. Probably they began to get more involved in Canaanite sin and said, this is very liberating. No longer are we following those old laws of Moses anymore. We can do what we want. This is very freeing. And in their minds, freedom looked like everybody doing what was right in their own eyes. And that's, by the way, a lot of people's idea of freedom today. Everybody just do what you think is right. But freedom mean, I mean, isn't that the ideal? I, I get to do whatever I want. Well, that kind of freedom isn't really free. It's actually bondage. Again, if you look back at uh, to Judges chapter 2, when they sinned, the Bible says the anger of the Lord was hot against Israel. It burned against them. Now, that's not a phrase you're probably used to hearing much. And honestly, New Testament believers don't talk about it much, do we? We'd rather talk about how God is a forgiving God, a loving God. That's certainly true. He is. But his anger burns against Israel as it burns against sin in general. Let's not forget that God is a holy and just God who cannot endure sin. His anger burns against sin, and his wrath is someday coming against sin. In fact, Romans says, the wrath of God is revealed against all the unrighteousness of man. So God is not indifferent to people's sin. In fact, wouldn't it be an awful thing if God just sort of shrugged his shoulders at sin and pretended like, oh, no big deal? Now, we want him to do that with our sin, right? Because our sin's not that bad, comparatively. But what if God just shrugged off sin in general? It would make him a very cruel and evil God. I mean, any decent person is going to be angry at least at some sin, right? Again, let me recall another episode of me being in another museum. I visited the Yad Vashem which is the Holocaust Museum in Israel. 
And it's a very moving experience. It's, there's a heaviness that comes when you visit the Yad Vashem. And right there in the middle of the room, there's a, there's a big, you know, there's several different exhibits and corridors and things. But in one of the rooms, you walk in, big hall, and there in the middle of the room is piled up all these very old shoes. The shoes of Jews who were gassed to death by the Nazis, just in heaps. Uh, the most troubling part or moving part, I guess you could say, is what's called the children's hall. You walk into this dark room, and every, I think, three to four seconds, they read off the name and age of a child who was murdered in the Holocaust. You know, Yosef, age five. And you stand there and think, and, and you cannot, I mean, if you're a decent person, you can't be there and, and not be at least a little angered that this evil was wrought upon our planet. Now, here's the problem. We are selectively angry about sin. Yeah, we'll be angry about the Holocaust, but we'll be less angry about other things. Things that uh, to us may not seem quite as big of a deal. But if you're a holy God who cannot stand sin in the, even in its most germane form, then you cannot, God is not selective in saying, well, you know, I'll let that slide, but this is, this is serious. No, God is a just God who judges sin the same. And so he did with Israel. And the just penalty of sin is that we find ourselves in bondage to it. Now, the wrath of God will be revealed, but in the meantime, those who practice sin find themselves enslaved to it, just like Israel was enslaved to their oppressors. Now, when God pours out his wrath and his wrath is made known against sin, the Bible says the wages of sin, the, the price to be paid is death. Now, in one sense, yes, all people die physically because of sin, because sin entered the world. But there's more to it than that. Because even believers die physically, even though the Bible says the second death will not touch them. And that's the fearful thing. A person who lives in their sin, does not repent, does not trust Christ, will go into the second death, which is the eternal punishment reserved for those who reject the Lord. Sinners, condemn, sinners will be condemned because their very nature and actions deserve the wrath of God. Again, I'm going to flip back to John chapter 8 real quickly because here again we, we get that idea of bondage coming through pretty clearly in verse 36, excuse me, verse 35. There it says, he who commits sin is a slave to sin. That's where you will be. If, if you serve sin, you will find yourself enslaved to it. Now, I, I'm far more concerned about individuals than I am countries and cultures. Uh, that's not to say culture doesn't matter or countries don't matter, but it is individuals who will find themselves separated from God eternally because of their sin. And yet, sin has devastating effects on cultures and countries. You know, there were some Israelites, I'm guessing, during the times of the judges, who didn't bow down to the idols, who didn't worship, and yet they found themselves oppressed just like their sinful neighbors. Right? They were, uh, you could say, collateral damage. Right? Because they were faithfully serving God, and yet the, the culture itself had turned against God, and now 
They were in servitude to the Midianites or the Moabites or whoever. So it's clear to me, and I think it should be clear, that America has drifted in many ways from its founding. Again, I've tried to be clear this morning. America is not a perfect country. It has serious flaws. But it was once true that America could be defined as a people who were religious and moral. I don't know that that's true today. And my point is that sin brings down a nation or culture into bondage, just like it does an individual. Rather than making people free and enjoying the benefits of freedom, sin causes bondage. You know, as we think about July 4th today, and we remember the Declaration of Independence and the war that was fought, the War of Independence. I recently finished a biography of Marquis de Lafayette. Lafayette, uh, actually there are over 700 Cities, towns, rivers, etc., named for Lafayette in this country, including here in our state. Lafayette was born in French nobility, but at age 19, he came to the United States of America to fight for American independence. He was on staff with General George Washington. Washington treated him like a son. He was one of several young men that Washington poured himself into. And at the Battle of Yorktown, where essentially the American Revolution was won, it was Nathaniel Greene, Young Alexander Hamilton and Marquis de Lafayette, who stormed the fortress and who basically won the day at Yorktown. He was an American hero. In fact, he was called the hero of two worlds because he hailed from the old world, France, a hero of the new. Marquis de Lafayette returned to France, and with him he brought all of the ideals of American liberty that he had learned, the the ideals of the American uh, Declaration of Independence, for instance. And he wished to see the same kinds of liberties seen in France. And he eventually became a key player in what was known as the French Revolution. Now, if you know those two stories, they turn out vastly different, don't they? The American and French Revolutions. The American Revolution produced a great country of freedom. The French Revolution turned into a bloodbath. And historians have often wondered... Why, kind of based on the same principles, did one turn out so successful and the other was such a disaster? Well, there could be a number of different reasons. But according to Lafayette and many of others who were contemporaries, it was because America had a deeply religious foundation, whereas France had embraced Enlightenment atheism. They, had, they saw freedom not as an opportunity to practice their religious beliefs. They saw it as a license to throw off every restraint. And so people were killed by the thousands. Lafayette barely escaped France before he himself might have been guillotined. Thousands of people were beheaded. The mob ruled the day in France during the French Revolution. And I think, I think there's a lesson there that freedom is not a license to do as we please. In fact, If we think that, if we think license is free to live as I choose, it's really going to lead you back under bondage. So if we choose to serve sin, it's like going from Louis XVI to Napoleon. It's not freedom. We're just trading one oppressor for another. Alex de Tocqueville, who was another French-born diplomat who traveled to the U.S. and wrote a famous book called Democracy in America in 1831, recorded all of his observations about the U.S., and one of them, he stated, the safeguard of morality is religion. 
And morality is the best security of law and the surest pledge of freedom. So in other words, no religion, no morality. No morality, no freedom. I fear for our country because I think we see sin being condoned and encouraged. And I think we're going to find freedom slipping away more and more. More importantly, though, as an individual, you cannot serve sin without making it master over you. You don't get to choose, well, I'll serve sin this much and no further. I'll serve the Lord, but I also kind of hang on to the sin. No, if we serve sin, we make it our master, and we will be in bondage to it just like the Israelites were to Moab. Thankfully, though, and lastly, I want us to see the freedom from sin. The freedom from sin. You notice the last part of the judges cycle is salvation. God would send a judge who would lead them out of bondage back into a right standing with God. Again, we saw that in various places. And go back and read the book of Judges. You'll see that pattern. Sin, servitude, supplication, the people cry out and God brings them back. Now the problem is the hearts of Israel were never changed. Even though they were delivered, even though the enemy was cast off, they went right back, like a, like a dog to its vomit, they went right back to the idols. So what we need is not just our circumstances change. What we need is a heart change. Again, I want to call our attention back to John chapter 8. There Jesus says in verse 32, you shall know the truth and the truth will make you free. Then jump down to verse 36. He says, if the son makes you free, you will be free indeed. In other words, how do you break free from the bondage that is sin? Answer, the son makes you free. It's by putting your faith in Jesus, the one who is the liberator, the mediator between God and man, the one who breaks the chains of sin. And this, I think, is a very serious matter. It's not just nations and cultures, but individuals. After all, a nation or a culture can never really be converted, can it? It's people who are changed by the Holy Spirit. Now, people have a ripple-out effect. That's why when there's been revival, when people have been saved by the grace of God, there's been changes in society. In fact, after a lot of the awakenings and things, people notice that with all the people now in church, all the bars are now empty. It had a really cultural effect. But our point is not to go out and change culture. What I'm saying here this morning is not we need to just reclaim America. What I'm saying is we need to preach the gospel and watch people's lives change. That's really the only hope for America, is that people will be saved by the grace of God, their lives change, and then that ripple-out effect can have an incredibly positive impact. So in John 8.36, it is the Son that makes you free, who sets you free. Not, not free in the sense of American independence, but in the sense of freedom from sin. Only Jesus can save. Here's the problem that we face. And that is sometimes even those who are saved by the grace of God go back to serving the old master. I've heard stories, and maybe you've heard these too, of people who are kidnapped victims 
They're kidnapped. They're held for you know, years at a time by somebody, some evil person who keeps them locked away in a dungeon or you know, keeps them on the move, whatever. And what, usually there's a lot of trauma, of course, but that person eventually kind of falls into a coping with and learning to get along in really awful conditions. And sometimes the police will, will swoop in, arrest the person, and that, that captive is now free. And yet I've often heard stories that they continue living in fear with some of the same habits, even though they're no longer prisoners. You know, if, if their captor kept them sleeping on the floor, for instance, even though they're free by the FBI or police, they're still sleeping on the floor of their hotel room because that's just what they've gotten used to. And I think that's what we sometimes do. Even though we've been set free by Jesus, we keep going back to sort of old habits that have been reinforced over years. We serve sin, we make it our master. Only Jesus can set you free. So if you want true freedom, true liberty, it is found in the Son of God by believing in him. I promised I would get to the main idea of the message, that we were going to work towards it. Here it is. When we embrace sin, we move from freedom to bondage. When we find forgiveness, we go from bondage to freedom. So if we make sin our life's goal, if that becomes our practice, then we are not moving towards freedom, we're moving away from it, into bondage. Sin becomes our master. Likewise, when we find forgiveness, we find freedom. So on this 4th of July, we ought to thank God for his blessings upon this country and the providence which has preserved it. Uh, We are more blessed and more free than any other civilization I can think of in history. And yet, I think many Americans are living under the bondage of sin. If you want to experience true freedom, it's found only in Christ. So I want to close with a couple of statements that bring this into further perspective. Number one, you cannot control sin. It will control you. Let's not proceed into this week thinking that sin is something I can kind of hang on to. I can practice, but I'll keep it over here in its own compartment. Maybe even as a believer, you think, I I can live for the Lord, and yet I can kind of hang on to these sins. Well, the Bible says, Jesus says, if you serve sin, anyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. You make it your master. It's going to control you, not the other way around. Number two, freedom is not license. As it was treated in the French Revolution, where freedom was seen as, let's do what we want. In Judges, it was treated as everyone doing what's right in their own eyes. Freedom is not license. Freedom is the freedom to do what is right, what the Lord has commanded. Freedom has guardrails. And then finally, the truth will set you free. The truth of Jesus, the truth of his word, is where freedom is found. As we celebrate American independence, American freedom, there's a freedom which is far greater, the freedom from sin, the freedom to serve the Lord, and the freedom which we will fully experience in heaven is available through faith in the Son of God.